When colonists landed in the New World in the early 1600s, they found a strange land populated with animals they had never seen before, flora that didn't grow in Europe, and they quickly found that they were not alone. They encountered the first settlers of America, the Native Americans, and over the next century, the European immigrant population soared from a mere 2,000 to 2.4 million by 1776. For the Native Americans, there is a word that the history books use to describe their experience during this time. Displaced. This is a tame word. Too tame, in fact, to describe what we as a country did to America's first settlers. A more accurate word would be genocide. Now, I'm a fan of Neil Gaiman, as I'm sure many of my listeners are, but one book I struggle with is American Gods. I probably lost a few listeners, but so be it. I'm not saying it's a bad book by any means, but I have always felt that the book ignored America's folklore. Perhaps it is because America's folklore doesn't belong to us, as it rightly belongs to the Native Americans. But the epigraph to American Gods has always bothered me. Quote, One question that has always intrigued me is what happens to demonic beings when immigrants move from their homelands. Irish Americans remember the fairies. Norwegian Americans remember the Nisser. Greek Americans the Verkalakas but only in relation to events remembered in the old country. When I once asked why such demons are not seen in America, my informants giggled confusedly and said, They are scared to pass the ocean. It is too far. Pointing out that Christ and the apostles never came to America. That quote is from American folklorist Richard Dorson. And yes, as Americans, how can we compete with Odin or Anansi? But like I said, our folklore doesn't belong to us. But that doesn't mean we haven't interacted with that folklore. If you listen to paranormal podcasts, you have surely heard stories of a folklore that has come to life. You can find numerous tales of hunters and hikers, and even motorists interacting with what the Lakota tribe calls the Chiye Tonka, or, if you prefer the Salish name, Sasquatch. Stories of the creature we know as Bigfoot can be found in the folklore of countless Native American tribes, from the Salish tribes of the Pacific Northwest to the Seminole of Florida, and many tribes from the Northeast. Some see the Sasquatch as another tribe of humans, while others see them as the protectors of the forest. In Algonquin folklore, there is a creature known as the Wendigo. The Wendigo is described as a gaunt, very tall creature that grows each time it consumes human flesh. It is a creature that has come to symbolize hunger, cannibalism, and the harshness of winter. It is believed that Wendigos were once human, transformed after consuming flesh during unbearable winters when food was scarce. There are some tribes that claim the Wendigo to be an inhuman spirit that could assume a host and drive that human host crave the flesh of other humans. In popular culture, the Wendigo has appeared as a Marvel Comics character in an episode of Supernatural, has been the subject of countless fictional stories, and has allegedly been encountered by hunters in Canada. The most affecting story, though, would have to be the Wendigo. This fictional story is written by Algernon Blackwood, and if that name sounds familiar to you, it's most likely because of H.P. Lovecraft. 
If you've read Lovecraft's most famous work, The Call of Cthulhu, you undoubtedly recognize this epigraph. Of such great powers or beings, there may be, conceivably, a survival. A survival of a hugely remote period when consciousness was manifested, perhaps, in shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity, forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory, and called them gods, monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds. That, of course, was attributed to Algernon Blackwood. Blackwood was an English journalist, essayist, and fiction writer. He was an avid lover of the outdoors, and it reflected in his stories. The Wendigo is one of his most recognized works. It takes place in northwestern Ontario, where a divinity student named Simpson and his uncle, Dr. Cathcart, are on a hunting trip. The narrative follows Simpson and his guide, a French-Canadian man named Joseph Defago. The men make camp, and it isn't long before Defago smells something he doesn't like, an unnatural odor drifting on the air. Sometime during the night, Simpson wakes to a frightened Defago cowering in the corner of their tent. He is afraid of some unknown horror outside, and in a panic he runs into the night. Simpson is able to track him, but it isn't long before one set of tracks becomes two. The second set don't appear to be human. Simpson tracks Defago a little further before calling it off and returning to camp. If you haven't checked out this story, I highly recommend it. It scared the pants off of me. Native American legends are not only home to legendary creatures, but also legendary sites. Throughout the United States, there are sites that Native American tribes deemed as sacred. In some places, they would look up at the mountains and see where the trees feared to grow, or where the energy of a certain location felt different, and they would proclaim them sacred. These are the areas that seem to attract certain types of anomalous activity. Strange lights in the sky, mysterious animals that seem out of place, sounds that appear to be far from home. The story I bring you today takes place in one such location. It has an ominous name, the Devil's Den, and it is considered to be cursed. In 1977, two men decided to go camping in the Devil's Den. On the only night they stayed there, one of the men woke up to see that his friend was kneeling by the entrance of the tent, afraid of what was out there. My name is Rob Christofferson, and... If you had a close encounter of the fourth kind and you are back, we're anxious to hear from you. Terry Lovelace likes to jog. He took up the practice in the early 80s, back when the idea of jogging was new. 
Many assumed it would become a fad, including Terry's dad. Terry's dad was a frugal, reserved man who didn't give in to fads. When they got together, as they did once or twice a week, Terry told his dad that he had started jogging, and his dad has a simple question for him. Why the hell do you want to run if no one's chasing you? It's funny to picture a man berating his son for wanting to get healthy, but it's a question that is relevant to today's episode. Despite his father's objections, Terry continued to run, and he continued to get better at it. His mile run times got faster. Soon he was surpassing the mile to a mile and a half and up to two. When he started doing two-mile runs, he began to notice that his right knee would tingle a little bit. And just above the knee was an area, roughly the size of a silver dollar, that would become numb. He could trace it with his finger, and it was the shape of a perfect circle. Naturally, Terry consulted with his doctor, who told him that if it didn't hurt, don't worry about it. So he didn't, and he continued to run. On the morning of October 23, 2012, Terry woke up in incredible pain. The pain, as you could guess, was in his right leg, around his knee. His wife drove him to the hospital, where they took an x-ray of his leg. The x-ray tech took the first image, then took another, and another. She was confused by what she was seeing, and asked Terry if he had ever taken shrapnel during his time in the Air Force, or maybe from an accident. Terry replied no, but it was there, clearly on the screen. A thin piece of metal just above his knee. Even more startling, the x-ray showed that in the middle of his calf muscles was a flower petal arrangement of flat discs, the same consistency of bone. The radiologist checked Terry's knee for a scar, where the unknown piece of metal should have gone in, only there wasn't one. The physician determined that Terry was suffering from a baker's cyst, and ordered him to rest his knee for a couple of weeks. In the back of his mind, he just couldn't let it go that easy. Terry decided to use one of the most dangerous tools that man has, Google. That's right, Terry played WebMD with the universe, and he paid for it. The only search returns that came back concerned alien abduction. It turns out, finding the object in his knee brought old memories to the surface. Memories that caused him nightmares over the years. They would come and go every few years. By this time, it had been decades since the last one. It was long after the discovery of the metal that the nightmares would return. There was a time when Terry would write down his nightmares. He tried to make sense of what his dreams were telling him. It had been years since he had read those dream journals. They sat comfortably in a storage locker in Michigan. But after the piece of metal was found, Terry's wife Sheila made a special trip to Michigan and retrieved those journals. For experiencers, the process of unlocking abduction memories requires a triggering event. A doctor's lab coat during a routine visit may produce a sense of anxiety that had never been there before. A plane's lights may remind the witness of a strange object that they had seen in the sky on a previous occasion. Or perhaps you see an image so specific that you connect with it for some unknown reason. Such was the case for Terry during the Christmas shopping season of 1987. 
Terry and his wife Sheila were at a shopping mall when they walked by a chain bookstore. Sitting on the discount table was a book that created its own anxieties for many readers. The cover of Whitley Strieber's Communion unleashed abduction memories all across the world. And a decade later, Strieber, along with his wife Anne, would publish many of those accounts in a book called The Communion Letters. When Terry picked up the book that day, he immediately felt nervous, and he left the store, and the mall itself. Sheila had to run to catch up with him. She immediately noticed that he was pale and sweating profusely. Of this feeling, Terry said, quote, The panic is hard to describe if you've never experienced it. It's a feeling that something awful is about to happen. I'd compare it to sitting in a stalled car on the railroad tracks while a speeding train rounds a bend. Sheila encouraged him to see a therapist who determined that he had elevated levels of anxiety and paranoia, consistent with someone who was suffering from PTSD. When Terry was eight years old, he would run into his parents' bedroom with stories of the monkey men. At night, they would come to visit him in his bedroom. They would dart around his bedroom like shadows, and out of the darkness they would walk. By the light of the moon, these were short creatures with gray complexions. Their eyes were yellow, and they had friendly smiles that would transform into the harshest of grins in an instant. Terry, everything's okay, they would say. Won't you come play with us? They seemed friendly at first, but those grins said otherwise. The monkey men would form a semicircle around his bed and ask him repeatedly to come play with them. Terry could only scream, and every time he did, Terry's parents became more familiar with his nightmares. He was getting too old for this. In May of 1963, it had been nearly two months since the last Monkey Man encounter. The sun punctured the blue sky and watched all that its rays could touch with its heat. Terry was outdoors shooting a bow and arrow. A lone cloud wandered over, settling above him, and when he looked over his head, he saw a silver disc hovering just 50 feet above him. The edges of the disc curled upward and it made no noise as it wobbled slightly in the gentle breeze moving through. It was shiny and gorgeous in the way a brand new sports car is gorgeous, he said. His mind raced through a list of planes or aircraft that it could be, but none of them matched. The air was statically charged, and the world around him was silent. Terry laid back on the grass and watched the object hover above him for a few minutes before it tilted 30 degrees and shot off over the power lines. Every time Terry smelled fresh cut grass from now on, it made him think of this UFO. This sighting brought with it a new set of nightmares. They began with dreams of lights in the sky and progressed to shadowy figures moving about the house. The tall shadows resembled the praying mantis. They would take him out of his house and pin him down doing whatever it was they did, and he couldn't scream until they were done. Despite this, Terry believed the aliens to be good. He wanted to be an ambassador for them on Earth. During this time, his parents began to notice a change in Terry. He would race home to avoid being out after dark. 
He was uneasy around his neighbor. He was uneasy around his Asian neighbor, Sue. I can't tell if that's racism or not, so we'll just move on. He became much more wary of doctors and lab coats. The next three years went by without the monkey men, as if Terry were growing out of them. But in January 1966, Terry would have another UFO experience. He went to bed at nine that night, but woke up a few hours later. Yellow and green lights spilled into the room through his drapes, casting long shadows on the walls. A mechanical hum vibrated through his body and through everything. Terry was feeling apathetic, but his curiosity got the better of him. He pulled back the drapes, and before him hovered a disc-shaped object surrounded by fog. The vibrations made by the craft caused the model plane to fall to the floor. In all his time, he never had proof for himself that any of this was real. The model plane was all the proof that he needed. If he woke up in the morning and the plane was still on the floor, then it had to be real. To sweeten the plot, he fixed the drapes so that they were skewed before he crawled back into bed. When Terry woke the next morning, it was as if someone had flipped a switch, as if he had just fallen asleep moments before, and daylight was just a toggle switch. The model plane was still on the floor, and the drapes were still skewed. This incident did bring with it a new set of nightmares that involved strange UFOs and praying mantis-like beings that would perform strange experiments on him. Terry never talked about the Monkey Men for the remainder of his teenage years. After graduating from high school and without many options to pay for college, Terry enlisted in the Air Force. The draft had ended and the Vietnam War was winding down, which made it an opportune time to do so. He served six years at a Whiteman Air Force Base, where he worked as an EMT pulling the night shift. It was in this position that he befriended an African-American man named Toby the two would become great friends. In the winter of 1975, the pair were playing a game of hearts when an emergency call came in. A man had fallen off a silo where nuclear ordnance was being stored. The night was bitterly cold, and the scene that Toby and Terry drove up on was something straight out of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Vehicles and soldiers all stood around the silo, looking up into the sky. Hovering there was a black diamond-shaped object. Everyone stood there, watching the object until it disappeared in the blink of an eye. On a similar cold morning in early 1977, Toby called Terry outside. In the sky, a globe of light, a bit smaller than the moon, was traversing the night sky. It moved below the moon, fast for a number of seconds before blinking off as if it had known that it was being watched. In April of that year, it was Toby that suggested the two should go camping. The idea of a pair of city dwellers camping quickly evolved from a joke 
to an obsession. Toby would bring his binoculars for stargazing, and Terry would bring along his camera to capture some nature shots. They scrounged whatever else they needed from friends, and bought enough food to last them for the weekend. In response to a recent spate of Bigfoot sightings in the area, their squadron jokingly placed a can of Momo repellent in their bag. Their destination, Devil's Den, is nestled in Lee Creek Valley, outside of Winslow, Arkansas. Its landscape is littered with sandstone caves, bluffs, ravines, and other natural structures that made it attractive for outlaws and Native Americans when the battlefield stage line ran through the Devil's Den. Today, the stage line of the 1880s has been converted into a 15-mile-long trail known as the Butterfield Hiking Trail. On August 28, 2017, Rodney Letterman, a resident of Bartlesville, Oklahoma, disappeared while resting on the Butterfield Trail. Rodney suffered from high blood pressure, which required medication daily to manage it. Rodney and a friend were barely a mile down the trail when he had to stop to rest. His friend hiked back down to the car to retrieve Rodney's medication. But when he returned, Rodney was nowhere to be found. A massive search ensued that covered over 4,000 acres in and around the Devil's Den State Park. But Rodney was never seen again. All that was found was a cell phone, a cell phone charger, and a flashlight that was discovered in a makeshift camp. Researcher Lauren Coleman noted in his 1983 book, Mysterious America, that locations bearing the name Devil were often seen as sacred or cursed sites to the Native Americans, and that various types of anomalous phenomenon could be witnessed there. For example, in California's Diablo Valley, many people have claimed to see Black Panthers. In the Devil's Bake Oven in southern Illinois, it is said that under a full moon, Figures composed of mist wander the hills, and when they disappear, moans and wails can be heard in the surrounding area. When Terry and Toby arrived at Devil's Den, they had forgotten most of their provisions. Instead of setting up camp, the two went on a hike, and when they returned they dozed off and awoke a few hours later in the failing light. They rushed to grab everything from the car and set up camp as quickly as they could. Around the fire, they roasted hot dogs and looked up at the Milky Way. They proclaimed themselves great outdoorsmen. It wasn't long before their serenity was replaced with an uneasiness. Both men would look back on this experience and believe that they had been led this way, as if they had been sabotaged by their own subconscious. It was Terry that first noticed how silent the woods had become. It made both men uneasy. It was Toby that first noticed the lights, three of them, low on the horizon, twinkling in the sky out of place. Toby drew Terry's attention to them, and the pair watched and laughed off the unease that had crept in on their camp. Twenty minutes later, the lights began to move, rotating in unison, the shape of a perfect triangle. The lights climbed up the horizon and grew larger to the men who were now in a panic. As they came closer to their campsite, they could make out a black shape attached to the lights, 
The craft's lights were bright enough to illuminate the surrounding meadow, casting long shadows on the trees than the forest canopy. Toby had the idea to signal the craft with his flashlight. He pointed the light toward the craft and turned it off and on three times. In response, a beam of light dropped from the center of the craft before disappearing seconds later. The white beam was soon replaced with a pencil-thin blue one. The light darted around the campsite, blinking off and on, appearing in another place and blinking off again. The men described a feeling of sedation when the blue light appeared and would retire to their tent shortly after the blue light had blinked off for a final time. It was only a few hours later when Terry awoke to a bright light shining into the tent and a low bass hum sound that was causing him intense pain. It hurt to move, and he was incredibly thirsty. A series of green and yellow strobing lights were putting on a show outside. Crouching down, Toby was peering outside the tent. He had tears streaming down his face. He was clearly scared, and when Terry reached for the flashlight, it was quickly snatched away. He told Terry to be quiet, and that they were still out there. From inside the tent, Terry could see shadows walking in front of the lights. They rustled leaves as they moved in the meadow, and his impatience got the better of him as he threw open the canvas door. There, in the meadow, was the triangular-shaped object that had hovered over their camp. It was nearly as big as the meadow itself. Underneath the object, Terry could see a number of child-sized shadows moving about. Toby was quick to point out that they weren't kids. They weren't even human. They took you too, Terry, Toby said. They hurt us both. The pair watched as a beam of light came down from the craft, and the short beings walked in and dissolved. The craft immediately lifted up and gained speed, becoming a small speck as it gained altitude. Terry only had faint memories of what had happened. He remembered a flash of white light that transported him on board the strange craft. The ceiling and walls emitted light, revealing a row of three flying saucers parked nearby. And some of the walls had strange symbols carved into them. The two men sat in silence in the safety of the tent. They never spoke above a whisper. Terry looked down at his boots and noticed that the boots that were laced tight before he had dozed off were now halfway down his feet, and his socks were crooked to boot. Both of them quickly fixed their socks and shoes, as if it would dispel what had just happened to them. They decided to leave as quickly as they could, and left everything behind, with the exception of a kitchen knife, which made Terry feel a little more at ease. Toby appeared to be in rougher shape, and it was agreed that Terry would drive while Toby slept. 
They drove for a few hours before daylight broke. Terry looked into the rearview mirror, but what he saw was startling. His face was red and puffy. His eyes were nearly swollen shut. His body appeared to be covered with numerous sores, and his arms appeared to be burned, and both men were running a fever and chills. When he finally made it home, Sheila rushed him to the emergency room, where Terry was running a fever of 104 degrees. He stayed in the hospital for a number of days, but on the third day, he received an unlikely visit from the Office of Special Investigations. A man identifying himself as Agent Gregory set up a tape recorder and asked Terry a series of questions. He inquired as to the nature of their swift departure, about the three stars that the men had seen in the sky, and if they had taken photographs. Agent Gregory was stern with Terry. He didn't believe much of what he said, especially when he answered no to bringing a camera along. He made Terry sign papers that allowed his property to be searched and seized. It wasn't long before agents raided the Lovelace home and seized his camera, film, and exposures that Terry was developing. He was warned never to talk to Toby again, and that the pair were being reassigned. Terry was discharged a day later, and was given a narrative to follow by his doctor. He was told that they were drinking, and exposed to radiation from a natural limestone bluff. He was given a medication that required monitoring from a nurse, who would come over to the Lovelace home daily to make sure he was taking it. But while taking the medication, Terry said it felt like his memory was failing him. He couldn't remember simple things like where his watch was, or what day it was. He stopped taking the medication shortly after, and settled into a routine of spitting out the pills after the nurse left. He ran into Toby as he was packing up his home for reassignment. They didn't exchange too many words. All Toby could ask was if it was all real. When Terry left, an ominous black military car was sitting outside that pulled away when he laid eyes on it. Minutes later, Terry received a phone call from an angry Agent Gregory. Terry was reassigned to another unit, where he mostly did menial work. He would paint multiple sheets of plywood away from the rest of the unit, and then paint them a different color. One warm afternoon, while Terry was painting plywood, he was summoned to the OSI offices. He consented to being hypnotized without actually knowing what he was consenting to. He was put into a trance by a guy named Brad was injected with sodium pentothal, or truth serum. Terry did his best to resist, but he found that he couldn't refuse them. They took him back to the night of the camping trip. They inquired about the stars that had moved on their own, and he said the space people told Terry and Toby where to camp. Terry alluded to knowing these beings from his past. They were the monkey men of his childhood, who would come into his room and dart around like shadows. Inside the ship, Terry stood in a line of some 50 people waiting to undergo a procedure. There were taller aliens that seemed to be in control of everything, and if one of those creatures looked at you, it was like being completely naked. You couldn't hide anything from them. 
Some of the ship's crew appeared to be composed of humans as well. They wore tan suits with orange insignias on their shoulders that appeared to signify rank. Terry was marched down a long wall of aquarium tanks filled with pink water. Inside floated reptilian-like beings with large eyes. He was brought into a room with a strange female hybrid beside him. She told him that they lived on the dark side of the moon, where humans lived alongside them. She provided comfort when he needed it. Terry was then subjected to a medical examination by a group of short, gray beings, while a taller one supervised. When Terry would scream, the taller being would become annoyed. He would remind him that he had done this before, that he wouldn't remember it, so why scream? Finally, the tall gray put him out of his misery. He placed a hand on Terry's forehead, which caused him to black out. The beings returned Toby and Terry back to their sight. They did, however, make a mistake. The aliens initially placed the two men near the car and had to come back and place them in their tent. Before concluding the session, Brad instructed Terry to forget everything, but it didn't work. These memories have largely remained with Terry for the rest of his life. He was placed back in a hospital unit where he served out the rest of his time. Terry would have further interactions with the alien beings over the course of his life. He would find moments of missing time, and he would find himself in strange places with no memory of how he got there. In 2017, Terry began to speak about his experiences. During this time, he started to experience extreme weight loss. The nightmares returned after a presentation at a UFO conference in Houston. One night, after going to bed around midnight, he woke up a short time later, seated in his living room, across from what he first believed to be an Asian woman. She wore oversized sunglasses and a red headscarf, with a black button-down blouse that was buttoned to the top. She wore long sleeves underneath that, that covered part of her hands, and a pair of black pants and shoes. Terry thought that her wig looked ridiculous. She responded by saying, So you don't like it? It's the same as before. His mind was flooded with images of this woman. She was by his side during the Devil's Den abduction and at various other times in his life. She expressed concern that talking about them would cause harm with the relationship the beings had with the government and that they would remove his implants. And on November 16th, 2017, they did just that. He woke up that morning with incredible pain in his legs. 24 hours later, bruises appeared that took the shape of the flower pattern that had been on the x-rays from five years earlier. And in the center of each of them was a red mark. And a day later, an x-ray confirmed that the implants had been removed. This episode of the Our Strange Skies podcast was written and produced by me. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the show, you can leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We're also available on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and most podcast apps. Another way you can support the show is by becoming a patron 
over at patreon.com slash ourstrangeskies. For $5 a month, you can receive bonus episodes, which include meltdowns and minisodes. If you'd like to connect with us, you can email the show at ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for us. Our theme song is by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo was designed by Tessa Brown. Thank you again for listening.